Welcome to Professor Charlene Hesbider's podcast series. In our fourth podcast about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, she talks about how women deal with the news that they're BRCA positive and the challenges around sharing the news with other family members. Women, for the most part, are not necessarily caught off guard. They feel that they've kind of known all along because, as we know, cancer runs through families, as one woman said, as water runs through a sieve. The idea is that there are cancer narratives that they've grown up with. They've grown up with tales of grandmothers, even grandfathers, great-grandmothers having died from breast and or ovarian cancers. And they also know that there are loved ones that have survived breast and ovarian cancer. And for them, it's not as horrific because they haven't experienced in their lifetime someone who had breast cancer that they loved in their family die. For those women, there's a time for the BRCA gene diagnosis. And so they decide a little bit when they want to know. And for those women, however, that don't have that history to rely on, it can come as a real shock. Give us some examples of the different ways in which the women in your study responded. I was particularly interested in Stephanie and Marla's stories. Marla was really caught off guard. She was in her early 40s. She had been divorced. She had two kids. She came from a biracial family. She knew there was a strong history of breast and ovarian cancer on both sides of her family, for example. And she had lost her mother to ovarian cancer. Somehow or other, once she took all this cancer family history into consideration, her surgeon said to her, Marla, you know, you should be tested. She was really anxious about it. She said there wasn't a question in my mind about whether or not I would have the test, but actually having faced the test, she became really taken off guard, felt that, you know, maybe I was living in denial before this. It was difficult for her to come to terms with it. She had support from her family, but she was still devastated nonetheless by the news. Stephanie's reaction was very different, wasn't it? Now, Stephanie is an example of of someone who already knew she was positive and really truly believed she was. She, at the time of testing, was 31. She was married, had two kids. And, you know, she grew up with very strong family history of breast cancer in her family. Her mother had breast cancer three times, and she's currently in stage four, her mother. But she was pretty calm. She said to me, most cancer survivors in my family were diagnosed in their 40s and 50s. So she feels, I think, that she has time on her side. She said, I've already known I was positive before I was positive actually knowing it. I'll deal with it. I have kids. I want to take care of it. The mutation was inevitable for me. She's now planning to have her ovaries removed. And I think she found also tremendous support in her family, within her marriage, her faith. You don't hear that in in Marla's story. On that note of talking about sharing this sort of massive news with family and friends, what, what sorts of things did women tell you about how they felt about that? They feel they have to tell their family, have to alert everyone in their family. These women are called BRCA informers. Some of them do our elaborate diagrams, genealogical diagrams of their family's tree and who had cancer, who didn't. And yet some women, they have to face the issue, you know, who do I tell? At what age should I tell them? Some women wind up keeping secrets, BRCA secrets. Some women in the study Their relatives felt that they overstepped their boundaries by telling their children when they did not want their children to be told. And presumably the whole issue of guilt is an interesting one, isn't it? Did many of the women you spoke to feel guilt and were they able to explain why? 
one woman said to me, I have a daughter in her 20s and I have an, uh, another daughter in her 30s. The other daughter in her 30s, she's strong. She's always been a strong kid in the family. Her kid's sister is so fragile. I've told my older daughter, oh, we share this information, and now we both feel guilty because we're not telling the younger one. And when she finds out that we've kept this information, but she's not ready to hear it. And then the younger one hears it maybe a year later. What's her reaction? Why did you keep this information from me? She's feeling betrayed. She doesn't feel the same about her sister and her mother. She feels that they didn't have enough faith in her. That could cause lasting damage in a family. When you're trying to do some good, you wind up doing more harm than good. So it's a slippery slope about what do you do with this information? And when do you tell? How do you tell? Do you send everybody an email? Do you give them a personal phone call? How do you deliver this bad news? It's very complicated. Although your book focuses mainly on the experiences of of women, BRCA is not something, as you've already alluded to this, is not something that's uh, exclusive to women, is it? What are you able to say about men and BRCA at this stage? And I know it's something you're looking at in a future study as well. The men tell me, I'm not getting tested for myself. It's not for me. It's for my children. I want to be able to know whether or not my kids may be at risk. That's the only reason. That's mostly true among the older men in my study, especially those that are married with children. On the average, men get tested 10 years later than women in general. And so they're older. And among the younger men, let's say 50 and under, and some of them that are not married, they'll get tested because they want to know their medical risk. And most of them get tested because they find a something. Either they find that prostate uh, PSA level is high, that's worrisome, or they literally, as one guy said to me, I bumped into the bathroom door and I looked at my chest, I looked down and it was bleeding. And I thought, well, why is that blood coming from my nipple? What's going on there? And then I felt a lump. And then I went to the surgeon. They wind up bumping into their cancer. So by the time men get tested, many of them already have cancer, and many of them, for many of them, it's too late. Let's talk briefly about the impact on very young women that have tested for the gene. I'm guessing it's a small number, but you you did talk to, to some. More and more younger women are getting tested for the BRCA mutation. People know now about hereditary breast cancer. It's been on the news. Famous celebrities have talked about their BRCA-positive diagnosis. And so this younger group is armed with more information than you can imagine. And presumably what you describe as the cancer narrative, a story, a history of cancer in their family, plays a major role here for younger women. They have had mothers who have died from breast and or ovarian cancer at a young age. And the women in particular in my study who had surgery, many of them had family members, including mothers who died from cancer at a young age. So they've been hit pretty hard with the bad cancer gene and are motivated to eradicate this risk as early and often as possible. So many of them are launching into double mastectomies and oophorectomies, removing their ovaries and uterus, they have made that decision. And I would say they are very much part of a online BRCA sisterhood that empowers them in their decision making. They want to stem the tide. They want to be the last generation of women that dies from breast and or ovarian cancer. So they're on a mission. Just 
finally for this podcast, from your own experience and what you've heard from the women you interviewed, I wonder where you feel where you're at once you've been tested positive for the BRCA gene. Many of them launch into surgery pretty quickly following their doctor's advice, feeling that they're going to get cancer at any moment. As one woman said, my my breasts are ticking time bonds, I want to take them off. But for those women who have lived with these narratives of cancer in their family, have lived with the BRCA curse, as one woman said to me, they feel they can wait. Many of the women often go by their mother's cancer clock. When did my mother get cancer? Who else in my family got cancer? Did they live? Till what age did they live? So their mother's cancer history, their mother's narrative, at least for their daughters, becomes comfort for them. They're a little bit less frantic. But if their mother has died from cancer, they don't wait very long. They keep that that narrative. They keep that guide. But what about for those women who don't have that guide, that don't have that narrative to follow, that it, for, for whom it comes completely out, out of the blue? They're searching around for guidance. They're frenetic about it. They don't take the time. This woman said to me, I was so overwhelmed with fear that I didn't take the time to really think through it. It's that feeling of being blindsided that makes women afterwards feel extremely disempowered about their decision making. They don't feel they were in control of when to have surgery, what kind of surgery. Uh, They gave so much control over to the medical profession. So not having the sense that you had control of your decision was devastating to them. You see this really clearly when you compare those women who feel they had control, they had time from those that were blindsided by it. They needed more time to absorb and decide what to do. Charlene Hesbiber was talking to me, Chris Garrington, about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, which is published by the University of Michigan Press. In our next podcast, we'll talk about the options presented to a woman once she's tested positive for the BRCA gene and how decisions are made about surveillance or surgery. This series is produced by Research Podcasts.